journal, I diary, this is how I spend my alone time. But really, I think these three papers, um, although not related at all, I've related them. These authors, I don't know that they know anything about each other. Uh, <laughs> what I think they, they will now. Really, they will now. They do a nice Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. I'm Dr. Sasa Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, Sesson will bring us a conversation about the diplomat and women having it all, as they say. Then we're going to jump into the academic deep dive segment and discuss a new academic article, Honey, There's Something on My Mind, Adverse Consequences of Negative and Positive Work Rumination and Attention to the Partner and the Advantage of Talking About It. And finally, in good or bad advice, I'm going to talk about some advice, or we're going to discuss some advice, rather, for those experiencing empty nest at that time of year. Seniors are graduating high school, launching into, well, I guess their summer vacation, but, you know, uh, soon to be launching out of the home, uh, potentially. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Before we get to all of that, uh, if you have some advice you'd like to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook, Instagram us all at attached podcast, or just go straight to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. Uh, for bonus content, uh, especially a bonus good or bad advice, um, please become a Patreon uh, member at patreon.com slash attached. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, so on, please rate, review, and subscribe to it. Um, this is our very last episode of this season. Uh, look forward to uh, another season popping up in uh, September time. But for now, we'll leave you to your summers. But before we officially say so long, how are you guys doing? What's up? Talk to me. Sesson? Um, I am working on my summer to-do list, and it's growing longer by the day. It's amazing. I know. I have all of these hopes for catching up on things I obviously wasn't able to get to during the academic year. Yeah. It's always a long list for me. Is it? Yeah. Same here. And I usually don't write a list because it feels like I'm I'm filling my summer up with like to do things instead of just like being open to whatever I can receive. Um, but I feel like the more things I see around the house, especially the more things I'm like, I've got to really attend to this because the house is getting more and more cluttered and it's it's so easy to happen. Yeah. yeah, and it really is We're accumulating more than I think we need for sure, of course. And the garage, of course, is getting the worst of it. So um, <laughs> I am very ready not to like squeeze through my garage to get into the car and find, you know, that it's a, a more a, a pleasant space to be. I feel a little claustrophobic right now when I walk in. So I'm, um, if anybody has any good tips for how to approach a space like a garage that has a lot from decades like of stuff from between me and my partner. I think you're going to have to Marie Kondo it, right? Have you heard of Marie Kondo? Yeah, I did yeah. buy the book. I have the book. I got the first chapter read 
And oh. I, there's like one particular aspect of it that has stuck with me. And that's the idea of, well, you know, besides, of course, if it doesn't bring you joy kind of thing. Um, but this idea of when you have things like maybe passed down to you, things that you're not sure what to do with, but you hold on to it and you sort of just store it and you're not really using sure. it in a way that honors how the person would have used it or, you know, using it yourself in a way that brings joy, then it doesn't really mean much to just hold on yeah. to it. And that part like is always stuck, but I still not sort of like I get frozen when it comes to like actually doing anything about it. So I've got to maybe I'll pick up the book again and see if there's more mm. to it. I did stop reading. So maybe they, she gave advice for how to mentally get through that. <laughs> Beyond chapter one. <laughs> Beyond chapter one. There's Probably. a book dedicated to how to get through Marie Kondo's book that would map on. I'm sure that there is something out there. There's sure. so many approaches now that I feel like there's a whole show, like a Swedish show about it. I think um, I'm like to I didn't, cleaning, like yeah, to I didn't organizing. Things happen by like oh culture, or geographical location. <laughs> like, That's cool. Yeah, I mean, might as well pick between all. Of I call it. I call it purging the house. Like I go through closets on the regular and just like do a huge clean oh it's so lovely i look forward to the feeling that you're going to be feeling mm, there's an after that's all feeling done. that feels better than the before feeling i hope my gosh it feels so good i love it so much <laughs> when you have Maybe a clean you should closet. fly out and help me <laughs> oh i don't know there are some times when uh my husband's like where did that go i'm like we haven't used it in like a year goodwill that's your thing is taking it too far yeah i can see it yeah, but oh, also the house is looks nice right now. So I don't know, tomato, tomato, you know. I mean, taking it too far says the person who bought a book about how to clean. <laughs> I don't need that. I'm never book. reading the book, right? It's like, I'm like, oh, it's there somewhere. I have to clean the house to find the book. I was I just thinking the other day how excited I'm going to be when, uh, my baby who's two is getting older because I won't have to worry about saving hand-me-down clothes. I can just get rid of them. So like I could just get rid of them. I don't have to worry about like saving them. That's such a good feeling too. Just, and I have all of these friends all of a sudden that are pregnant. I'm like, got you. Huh, here, I have tons of stuff. Here you go. Now it is yours. And to give it without reservation, it's like, I know this is it. This is not yeah, I mean, there's like for each kid, I kept one like cute outfit that I liked from infanthood. But other than that, like they have holes in the knees. I mean, we have artwork up there, but we frame it and it's like on our wall. So uh, and then if Francesca, my oldest, has a really hard time getting rid of things, I just say take a picture of it so you can go back and look at it because that's all she does with stuff is she looks at it and then like she sets it on her shelf and then looks at it and then says, well, just take a picture of it and then you'll have it forever. And then you don't have to worry about losing it. So long, bye. Anyway, it's a lovely feeling. Oh, I cannot wait for you to feel that feeling. Woods? I have not been <laughs> up to cleaning, that's for sure. Well, you just we moved. Yeah, it's true. I also didn't realize there was like a whole discipline with like multiple approaches to it. I mean, of course, I'm behind the times. That feels <laughs> right. Yep. Have you heard um, of Marie Kondo? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, then you're not that far behind. Yeah. Um. Well, <laughs> okay. That's good. Thanks. Um. My daughter's transitioning schools next year. So this is 
um, like the season of wrapping up at a school she's been at for many years and they oh. have sort of like a senior week um, where the oldest kids in the school like pick for their classroom what their theme is for every day what they're going to dress up. It feels a little bit like second Halloween only oh. instead of like having a month's notice I have like a few days and I really and it's enjoy five it. days of it. Oh, yeah. you enjoy it, yeah? Well, no, yeah. I really do. Because it's sort of like um, whatever I can source that we already have. Like, I might supplement with, like, a few little things to sort of add to. But um, the first day of the week was dress like a board game character day. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. What was she? And so she came home last week and said, what do you think about Colonel Mustard? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I think I'm all in on Colonel Mustard. And so um, that is how she went to school this morning. And I literally cannot wait to hear like what the reception was. I love that so much. I know. Was she um, wearing tweed? No, because it's so hot down here now, right? So I had to still like create an outfit that she could otherwise like would wear to school in terms of like the clothes she already had so no it was yellow a lot of yellow mustard yellow and then like took a yellow napkin and like tied it around the neck like a little man's kerchief and we got like disposable mustaches and I did buy like off Amazon like this fake little monocle and she wore one of my like uh, fedora hats and I mean it was just like so fun oh my gosh you have a fedora hat yeah oh (laughs) hats are an aspirational part of my closet and I should not tell you how many hats I will never Marie Kondo out of my life because in my head, hats are my thing. And I could not, if you had to nail me down, when's the last time I wore a hat? I've never know. seen you. I don't know if I've ever seen you wear a hat before. Even I in cannot. the Florida sun beaming down on us, I don't think you ever attempted no, to. I'm sure that's true, but I, I have a lot of them. I love this about you so much, Sarah. I never knew that about you. Anticipate like what the what part of your closet you said? Um, Aspirational. Aspirational. (laughs) I love it. Now I can go buy clothes in honor of that. It's all aspirational. It's the opposite. There's no chapter in Marie Kondo's book about buying and retaining clothes that are aspirational. I think it's the opposite. But yeah, that's what I'm up to. But she would say, "Does it bring you joy?" And you're like, "Absolutely, it does." Yeah, because yeah. every time I put those hats on, I don't leave home. In your closet. I'm like, I'm a hat person. I keep forgetting I'm a hat person. And I do not ever leave. Uh, you redefine what it means to be a person of something. Like, you actually don't. In your mind. No one else knows that I'm a hat person. No. It's just for me. Uh, I love that so much. So this is the time of the year when we have field days, end of school. The schools have field days. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. The kids have so much fun. The teachers have so much fun. I just came from this morning, one of the kids field days and the other one is in a couple of days. They have so many relay races. It's They're all screaming and cheering for their classroom. It's so exciting. It's all the fourth graders were today. But the teachers at this school get so into field day. I love it so much. So the first part is like relay races. And the second part is like the water activities. So like they do all of the water, like relay, basically they're like dumping. And all the teachers are like just pouring water on the kids and like having like cups of water, just like they love it so much. And then of course the teachers are getting wet too. 
And then this year they had a tug of war. And so there are five classrooms, right? Homerooms. And the teachers, you know, the kids signed up or whatever. The teachers were in each of the tug of wars with their kids. So they're just there with the kids pulling as hard as they can. Um, one of the teachers, Miss Holderness, was like, come on, pull! I mean, they're so into it. I love it so much, the energy. I don't remember in elementary school or otherwise, like my teachers just being so into playing, even in during field day, it was like they all sat to the side and just like kind of watched the kids do it. And it just, the kids love it so much that at the end of the school year, they can play with all of their teachers. The teachers get into it. It brought me so much joy, Marie Kondo level joy. Um, it was so much fun. Oh, so it was so cool. I loved it. I cannot wait for Wednesday when the first grader does it. Oh, so, cool. We'll see. Fun. Hyped up on field day fun. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For the first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Susan, what you got for us? So today, I figure we talk about a very new but popular show already um, uh, released on Netflix in I think recently like in the last month The Diplomat and it stars Carrie Russell's aka Felicity um, oh my gosh I'm so glad you said it I was about to uh I also loved her in The Americans so yes. I loved hated her right like I character. love her in whatever she's in have you ever seen her in Waitress the rom-com I don't think so. you're gonna love it it's fantastic they turn it into a musical which is also really good but the rom-com i'm sorry i'm derailing this highly recommend 10 out of 10 it's good. yeah yeah don't ever recommend a musical to me but i'll watch the waitress <laughs> okay i'm sorry you roll for friendship. i'm sorry you don't like talent hard He's boundary my son is obsessed with like being in musicals so we're gonna see how that works out for all of us um yeah <laughs> Well, clearly that. he has good taste <laughs> both me and carlos i think carlos was the person who literally made it so like he just laughed at musicals especially les mis that we watched it once um and it, it just i don't know I, everything changed for me after that with musicals so uh where was i carrie russell <laughs> Um, so in this show, she is a career government field agent slash uh, diplomat who um, is now in the show juggling a high profile job as the ambassador uh, to the UK. Um, and she's in this very odd, I would describe turbulent sort of marriage with um uh, someone who, who is also in government, a political star who sort of had this long career, and now she's sort of stepping into the limelight and sort of taking what was sort of the role he had in terms of like the power and influence and is, is really um, stepping into her own. So there's a unique power struggle dynamic there. But um, that complicated relationship that she has with her husband in the show, I found like not just interesting and unique, but like there was something familiar about it in some ways. Um, very unique dynamic, but the fact that 
this main character is trying to balance a very challenging career with her role as a partner to someone felt familiar. So I, I sort of wanted to highlight that piece today. My sort of takeaway in watching this show has been like, gosh, it's hard to be um, a very, you know, powerful, high achieving woman in this really um, huge, you know, career role and trying to balance it all, right? Um, family, career, and having a sense that you're doing any of it really well. So we've talked before in this show about um, women in our society and how they're forced into some of these really challenging inequitable positions um, that don't often feel like there's harmony between the career and the family life and how it's for many reasons, institutional, structural, especially, but it feels like um, a lot of the women I know for myself, you know, in the research, it, this is something that is continuing to, it's a point of discussion, but there doesn't feel like there's a lot of movement in this um, effort for women to really have a healthy, you know, whatever balance looks like. Um, and I think it's causing a lot of, you know, mental health, you know, issues for women and causing, you know, burnout, exhaustion, so many, you know, different implications of this. Um, not on just the individual level, but on the family as well, when you think about it. Um, and so I just, you know, was thinking too, like, okay, when we're talking about women in careers, there's different levels of that, right? And I'm really interested today in maybe thinking a little bit more about um, those careers that women hold that require a lot of time and attention, whether, you know, um, they're sort of sitting at the top of the ladder and really um, the impact that that has on their ability to um, be coupled, have children, um, and of course the goal we all have, which is to have, you know, find meaning and joy in our lives. And that one, as I'm looking at the research, feels like really hard yeah. to imagine for women who are in these really high achieving kind of fields, um, like doctors, you know, business executive, lawyers, academics, and so forth. Um, and the research, there was one article that I came um, to read and really uh, connected with from the Harvard Business Review. Um, and so the research shows that generally speaking, the more successful the man, the more likely he is to find a spouse and become a father. And so the opposite actually holds true for women. Um, the disparity, again, is particularly striking among those women in these considered higher achieving fields, jobs. Um, and ultra achievers. 49% um, of women um, in these kinds of positions are um, childless. And it's not by choice. There's a lot of barriers for them to um, not only find partners, but to also um, have the time, financial stability to, to have children. Um, and the disparities go on and on and on and on. Um, one of the things that also struck me was just this lack of eligibles for women who are in these kinds of positions, how they have fewer and fewer um, options for partners. Um, and, you know, just all the inequities to me are just, you know, almost make me wonder. It's like when you're young, there's a lot of messages, you know, particularly for girls now around like, you can be anything you want to be. You can have it all. You can run companies. You can be this. You can be that. But there should be a disclaimer with all of that, honestly. I don't know that families and parents understand it yet, like the implications. But when we really use like the discourse around what women, 
particularly at a young age when you're setting them up to think about their lives and their trajectory, it's like we're sort of pushing them into this really difficult sort of way of existing in the world. And I find it really important to really be mindful as parents, like what this looks like for women and being more cautious in our efforts to try to really prepare them. So I don't know what you all think about this. What's come up for you as I'm speaking to this? I mean, I think um, part of me is also reflecting on how much worse this got during COVID. Um, so that whatever it looked like before, uh, over especially um, the early uh, time period of COVID, like the first six to 12 months, the data show that this is even more challenging for women who'd been previously employed um, and were maybe in dual earner families uh, picked up an even larger proportion of the household labor. And um, so that's what I'm thinking about as you're talking in terms of um, it exaggerated some of this unequal division of labor. And I don't know that I've seen um, research that has looked at how that's necessarily either come back to baseline or hasn't. Um, I've seen data on how the pandemic impacted like division of labor in households, but I don't know that I've seen sort of longitudinal data yet about how that's come back to base. I don't know if you all have, but that's what I'm thinking about is sort of how much more challenging this has gotten even in the last few years. And just to be fair, I don't know that that's necessarily hardest for people who are um, employed at sort of like highest levels of administration. I think for a lot of times it's harder for um, families where maybe mom or uh, female partners are working in jobs where there's less of a security net because they have less ability to access affordable child care. None of us, honestly, have the ability to access affordable child care. That's not something that our country does and prioritizes. Um, And that's a huge part of what I think you're talking about, um, Sasson. And um, so anyway, so that's what I'm thinking about, too. Uh, It's a similar direction I was thinking about my colleague, uh, Melissa LaGraff, who does a lot of research on family leave policy um, and how inconsistent it is across the board in the United States, but also really the stark absence of um, family leave for those who do want to have a family. And granted, not everybody does. I know that there's a lot of um, Gen Z who are talking about how they absolutely don't want children. So it might also be a generational um, difference that we might see with the generation um, below us not as interested in having kids. But that's neither here nor there because those who want to have children are finding a really hard time having children because of the absence of family leave, how it's basically relegated to the company to make those decisions. Um, there's not a national expectation of family leave. If there is, it's only for the mother and only for a short period of time. Um, and like you were saying, for mostly if you have a higher paying job too, you do tend to get those benefits. If you work for yourself, there's absolutely no um, safety net built in there if you want to have a child and are not going to work um 
six, eight, 12 weeks after delivery. I agree. And, you know, these inequities, these challenges at multiple levels, right? And that's what I also found really, I'm thinking about is really interesting. Like one of the things that came from one of the articles I was looking at actually also talked about how like those early years of career building, how they perfectly sort of overlap Mm -hmm. with the child Mm -hmm bearing years. And so it's like, you know, for women, the option of getting off, right, that ride for just even a year, whatever, it has really detrimental effects in terms of building that career for many, they don't find that there's a way back in, um, an easy way out, but not an easy way back in for them. And it's really, I think, you know, like you said, Sarah, like, this got worse. (laughs) You know, we've been looking at this body of research for a really long time now. And yet we're seeing it even harder on women, which I think is like something about how we're addressing this feels like it needs to really change. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for as long as we see most men in positions of power and particularly in government, (laughs) I don't know that they're going to prioritize that, right? And so at multiple levels, we need to see more representation of women to really, I think, get to some of at least the structural institutional things that really need to be in place in terms of policies that can Mm -hmm. help, you know, move along some changes at individual and relational level. This is a big conversation that we don't have. So um, there's definitely a lot to be said on this topic in future conversations. But for now, you know, um, as parents, be thinking about just what are the conversations you want to be having with your young children about what it means to really have it all as a woman in America and really setting them up, hopefully, to really figure that out for themselves, but to also just help set some really healthy expectations of what it looks like to have it all. And if that's what we're all aspiring to, because I, I think that's the... I don't know about you too, but that is what I wanted um, for all my life is to have it all. And now that feels like an impossible, you know, standard to achieve. And there's a lot of, you know, guilt or, you know, emotional reactions to that idea of me not being able to have it all. Right. And so. What do you mean have it all? What does that mean? Have it all, career, personal success, success in it all, be joyful in it all, have all of it be meaningful, like have it all. Yeah. And how that was always my goal is like, I want a family. I want my career. I want to be able to be at the highest level here and also be really successful as a mom and as a partner. And it's a zero sum game in life. You can't have it all and all go really, really well unless there's other things there, perhaps maybe to support that family you know, the kind of career right. financially. Which I think is important. All of, yeah, social support systems. Right. There's a yeah. lot of contextual factors that have to be in place for something like that to even be remotely achievable. But I don't even think this should be the goal. And I think that's what I think the conversation needs to be is like, what you know, really identifying on an individual level, maybe what it means to be happy and successful and not always pushing people just to think about having it all. Because what does that actually mean? What does that actually require in terms of, um, yeah, so. That's all I got for today. Nice. Today's academic deep dive is the third in our series of exploring new research on talking about our stress with the people we're closest to. Two episodes ago on Attached, we discussed experimental research that found that couples who spent time together after being stressed could literally uh, hear the stress in each other's voice, which moved their partners to support them more. In our last episode, we shared exciting research suggesting that listening to someone we love 
relive a distressing emotional memory resulted in an increase in partner's inflammation reaction, especially when the person sharing experienced intense emotions and their listening partner also reacted emotionally. In other words, we know when our partner is stressed, we can hear it, we can feel it, and our bodies literally react at the cellular level. But does this mean we should keep our stress to ourselves so to not impact our partner? And actually, many people do decide to do that, and you might be one of them. You may be keeping your stress to yourself and decide not to share it with the people you're close to, maybe to avoid stressing them out or adding to their plates, maybe. The research we're discussing in today's academic deep dive is on the rumination that can happen as a result. For example, when we have a bad day at work and are preoccupied with that work stress, reflecting over and over on it in our own minds while we're at home with our families. We know this kind of rumination can prolong our negative emotions about what's causing us stress, but how does this rumination process then affect our relationships? The new research we are discussing today, led by Dr. Julia Schulbauer at the University of Vienna, and recently published in the Journal of Happiness Studies, suggests that thinking about work stress outside of work hours takes up very limited energy we have for what we can pay attention to. This is kind of what we were just talking about, Sesson, resulting in less attention paid to our partner. They actually suggest that even thinking about good things that happen at work may take attention away from our families. But they also suggest that sharing the work-related ruminations with our partner may protect against decreased effort put into our relationship. Talking through what we can't stop thinking about may actually free us up to pay more attention to the people we most want to spend time with. Sarah, please share with us uh, about this research immediately, please. So what I think is important to think about in terms of paying attention is that these researchers are relying on what they're referring to as the load theory of selective attention, which means that in general, our working memory, what we're thinking about at any one moment, can only handle a certain amount of information at any one time. So we really end up having to select what information will be processed, what we pay attention to, and then what will be ignored, um, which is why really the idea of multitasking is not necessarily something to aspire to because nobody mm. really does that very well. I fully don't believe you. You disagree. You're a I'm big multitasker. Fully disagree. <laughs> well, uh, I've heard that before. I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, what they did was they used, these researchers used a daily diary study, um, and they had 42 heterosexual cohabiting dual earner couples. So these couples were partners uh, where they worked at least 20 hours a week, and uh, they lived in Germany or Austria, um, and they invited them to complete two online questionnaires per workday across two weeks. So they had a total of 579 dyadic observations between, so um, reports from each partner on these working days, 10 working days. Um, 
just for context about what this sample looks like, most of them had zero children, um, which I do think potentially impacts um, how much of that spillover effect happens between work and into your family. If I'm coming home to one person versus I'm coming home to four people, what can I pay attention to? Um, they worked an average of 41 hours a week, seven years on the job, and about 16% were self-employed. Um, so what they did was they asked each of these partners to report on how much rumination was happening about their workday at 7 p.m. in the evening. So they had enough time presumably being off of work for that thought process to sort of be getting um, into gear. They've maybe started thinking over and over and over already. They're getting stuck on their workday, but they're no longer at work. They also then at 9 o'clock at night, two hours later, uh, sent them a survey to report on how much attention they were paying to their partner and how often or how much they were sharing work-related thoughts with that person as well as their relationship satisfaction. So in order to be retained in the data set that we're going to talk about in terms of what they found, um, there needed to be at least an hour since that last working hour before the 7 p.m. survey and then at least 30 minutes between the two to be like retained in the sample that was analyzed for this study um, because what they wanted to do is give enough space for that rumination to maybe sort of kick in, but also enough time in the evening that you could presumably have time to spend with your partner, um, but not assess them at the same time so that they aren't, um, how you're recalling those things are impacting reports as much as possible. Um, and so what they found was that negative and positive work rumination. So thinking about being preoccupied with things that happened at work that were not so great or also that maybe were kind of great was associated with reduced attention being paid to my partner. So things like when I was with my partner today, my thoughts weren't distracted. I was completely with them. I listened attentively. All my attention belonged to them. That process starts to get impaired when I'm reporting that I'm thinking a bit about work and I'm getting a little preoccupied thinking about work while I'm at home. And what they also found was that the less attention I paid to my partner, that relationship satisfaction also decreased mm. for both the partner but also the person who's doing the ruminating. They themselves reported less relationship satisfaction a few hours later. Um, and what is really interesting about the study, I think, is that they also found that sharing work-related thoughts with their partner attenuated the negative effect of that rumination on attention, meaning when I shared not very much with my partner, when I kept that stuff to myself, I was ruminating and preoccupied about work, but I wasn't talking about it out loud, both kinds of ruminations, positive or negative, were negatively linked to paying attention to my partner. But that became a non-significant association when I was engaged in high levels of sharing. So if I'm talking out what I'm thinking about, then I am less likely to find any link at all between my rumination and how much attention I'm paying to you. And that was also true for that association between that thinking pattern, that rumination and relationship satisfaction. It also, it actually moved negative effects into positive effects. So that some of that thinking, when it's fueling me talking out loud with my partner, then that becomes not just um, less of an issue or maybe not an issue at all about how much attention I can pay to you the rest of the evening, but also it means that um, our relationship may even get closer the more that we mm. share and are open with each other. So what I think is important to remember is that in this study, what they looked at was that process of being preoccupied, that thinking over and over about work, and whether it was negative or positive 
could spilled over to affect the relationships at home. But sharing mitigated that impact. It took that negative effect away in this study. Um, And what I think we've talked about a little bit before um, in this season of Attached is there's such a strong emphasis sort of culturally now on self-care. We talk about self-care and self-care and self-care. What does that look like for you and how do you do that? Um, And I think a lot of times people think that that should really be by themselves, how Mm -hmm. they're responsible for taking care of it internal, um, away from maybe anybody else. I go for walks by myself. I take baths by myself. I journal. I diary. This is how I spend my alone time. But really, I think these three papers, um, although not related at all, I've related them. These authors, I don't know that they know anything about each other. Uh, What I think they (laughs) They will now. They will now. They do a nice job really emphasizing what the power of dyadic coping is, Mm. meaning we're meant to co-regulate together. When we are stressed, we are meant to be in connection with other people. That's a basic human need. But when we are stressed, it's especially valuable. The people we care about um, and the people that care about us in ways that are really genuine and authentic and that we know are safe, that we can trust, they want to show up for us. And they know we're stressed even if we are not necessarily stressed about our relationship together when we are bringing that stress from home or from some lab experiment that I just consented to participate in and we come back together they can hear it in my voice they can feel it in their body and the more that I let them move in to support me the better our relationship becomes so an issue isn't yours or mine it's ours we share our stress together and we can Mm. help each other not only feel less alone but we can join forces together we can problem solve i can feel literally supported in whatever this looks like even if we don't necessarily come to an answer about what Mm -hmm. to solve especially if we consented to participate in that experiment. <laughs> There's no answer to that. That's already done. Um, I would argue this is not just a couple's thing. The research we've looked at over the last several episodes has focused on couples, and I think that is really important. But I would argue that there is good research and also lots of clinical experience uh, about the power of doing this in close relationships across the board. And social connection often doesn't look like a romantic relationship, right? There are lots of ways in which we connect to other people. It's just a really basic human need. And I would love to see the discourse, the conversation broadly move even a little bit beyond focusing on it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to acknowledge or admit when we need some mental health support. It's really always very individually focused. And what we need to be sort of thinking about is that another key basic need is not just physical health and mental health, but a way to support both is being in connection with each other and really emphasizing relational health. Um, And I think these papers do a nice job of sort of carving out at least one chunk of that. Um. Lovely. Well, I will say that this gives uh, me less guilt for uh, the complaint session that me and my husband have after work almost every single day. (laughs) I think, oh, maybe we should like our jobs more. Um, So this is like, no, we're building our relationship. We're staying healthy. So that's lovely. (laughs) That's right. I mean, how much is it sort of about you not just opening up and relieving your stress, but also allowing him to move in and help take care of you? Like, that's a gift, really. You should not feel bad. You're giving gifts, Patricia. I'm giving gifts. And he he can complain about his work, though my complaining usually is much more substantial. Don't know why, but anyway. So something that comes up for me is we're talking, two questions, one question, I guess. Um, The first one, did you mention whether or not this was joint uh sharing or is it like one person perhaps doing the sharing here and maybe not both 
So it is, they're looking at how this happens in couples, but each individual reported how much they on their own were sharing with their partners. It wasn't an intervention. They weren't asked to share. They were um, only reporting on whether or not they did do that and how within that couple that impacted or sort of lessened any association between the rumination they'd already reported and the attention that they were saying they paid to their partner. I'm curious if there would be a difference in that, right? In those outcomes, if it was one person just doing that versus both. See, like, I can imagine if one person is offering the support, right? The and the other is not, that might have an impact on how one, you know, feels in that relationship. Unilateral sort of taking up space, sure. Right. And the other big one to me is, you know, I've been, you know, including dyadic coping variables in my studies for years and really how important dyadic coping is, but also this idea of how you do it. And Mm. it really, you know, there's a lot of research on coping and what that looks like, but just, you know, there is the problem solving coping, for example, versus just the emotional support coping. And I'm curious, did they identify what kind of responses maybe they were getting when they did share, whether it was just a lot of validation versus problem solving, which I know a lot of couples do not always appreciate, right, when they're sharing and then they get that in return. Yeah. No, that's a really great question. In this study, they didn't drill down to types of um, responses to sharing, uh, only looking at um, Uh, levels of sharing work-related thoughts with their partner and how that was tied to then how much attention I may be able to pay to them, Mm -hmm. even in the event that I'm ruminating. But I would certainly agree, and I think at the individual couple level for people listening to this episode, knowing what your partner finds most helpful and even in individual moments uh, of sharing is very key. I mean, my guess would be that because the relationship satisfaction went up, it was the type of coping and response that works best for that couple would be my hypothesis. Yeah, sure. Whatever type it is, it would be what works best for them. Yeah, because the opposite can happen, you know, and that's the thing with this stuff. It can actually cause more conflict if one is sharing, expressing themselves, being vulnerable, and in turn, they're getting something that stresses them out more and feels like you know better for them than they know for themselves. So it's really helpful, though, I think, to hear, you know, for the audience and, you know, people in relationship to really think about how sharing that can actually help the relationship. And I think so many people, like you all said, want to internalize thinking they're being helpful to their partner by not stressing them out as well right and i'd also be curious in terms of like when we talk about the partner sharing that how it increased satisfaction but i'm also curious based on last week when i talked about when you do share it also may increase the physiology right the Mm -hmm. stress hormones in the other partner so what that might look like Mm -hmm. in terms of physical response levels um of the partner yeah Well, and sort of um, different to think about sort of short-term indications that I am experiencing stress because you're experiencing stress. And although you're right, last episode's paper did focus on potentially some of the long-term health consequences of sort of continuously being bathed in those inflammatory reactions, we don't necessarily know what the long-term consequences are of those in-the-moment inflammation reactions, right? Just the more emotion I see you experience and the more emotion I experience as a result, 
that amplifies that inflammation reaction. So I do think there is this process in thinking about co-regulation. I do agree in terms of like, can I at the same time self-soothe? How do I come down from that? Do we have trust and safety in our relationship where some of that in the moment stress or sort of emotional attuning can happen, but that can help support our relationship connection and our feeling like we can rely on each other and we're joined together versus that sort of floods us and we're not able to support each other. And that looks different for different couples, for sure. I think it's a really interesting question about the long-term pathways. You're right. These three papers are definitely sort of in-the-moment research. And I think it's potentially also qualitatively different events that are being shared, right? In the paper from last episode, Mm -hmm. it was like things that definitely elicited a strong emotion from the individual. And these work stressors could just be like you would not believe the crap that so-and-so said today and that i mean it's crazy right oh my gosh it's so crazy and then you laugh about it or you might be like oh my gosh that was insane like what are they thinking like type of thing rather than like tearful response it could be a qualitatively different response but maybe it does elicit a physiological reaction or maybe it's also a sense of relief getting it out because rumination would also uh elicit a, a physiological stress reaction especially if you're in it for a while oh my gosh we have so many questions um for this researcher hopefully they have all of this data and we could talk about the 10 more papers they have to come Woo-hoo! Boo! Woo-hoo! Yeah! finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture we hear relationship advice from our parents and friends and also our families. Um, We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all of those top 10 lists. But this is gonna become a shock for you guys. I want you to hold on to your seats, okay? A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad, or we just discuss it. So today we are going to talk about empty nest. Uh, It's syndrome, but I don't really know if it's a diagnostic. It's just kind of what they call it in this blog. It is from betterup.com and it gives eight ways to kind of cope with um, experiencing sadness from your children leaving the house. An interesting article at the front, it really explains and defines what empty nest is and like some symptoms of it um, and what that process looks like. But here are some ways how to deal with empty nest syndrome as they call it. So first, um, make social connections. Use your free time to connect with old friends. Understandably, partners may neglect their social relationships as they barely have time for themselves, let alone others. Try to enter new social spaces that offer new connections. Investing in friendships is a healthy distraction and alleviates feelings of loneliness. All right, so what are we thinking about this first bit of advice, Woods? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there is research to suggest that Um, the reverse typically happens that when people are sort of at this stage of life aging and experiencing empty nest um, uh, they also are more likely to sort of be trimming those social networks now that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're describing in terms of investing in their friendships is uh, not possible but there may be sort of 
I think um, this natural process anyways of sort of trimming more like the acquaintances. I think that's what research would suggest. So we're sort of increasingly left with as we age, the relationships we're closest to anyways. I might sort of only add to that, Mm -hmm. that probably investing in some of those friendships before you all of a sudden find that your kids are no longer there might be sort of key because um, uh, having that support ready to go will be easier than trying to create more of it on the back end when you're already sort of feeling sad. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes it's hard to make friends when you're feeling sad. Sesson, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's vital. I mean, um, and it's also, I think nowadays with, you know, Zoom and options, there's a lot more opportunities to reconnect with people or to connect with people. I have clients who you know, go through this process of empty nesting and have found the virtual space to be a really great opportunity to join groups and to reconnect with people who don't live in the same states as they do, friends. I think there's a lot of really created um, some opportunities to build connections, of course, Zoom. But I do think that, um, you know, the impact we all know of social relationships on our mental health you know the evidence is very consistent like we we need people in our lives and so i think finding those connections as hard as it can be to sort of try to rebuild if you've been away from those relationships for a long time i think it's valuable so i think it's good advice good advice okay next is set goals for the future adopting a forward-looking mindset alleviates feelings of grief it sparks motivation and promotes a healthy sense of perspective Setting and achieving goals also encourages the development of your authentic identity. Sesson, what are your thoughts? Well, (laughs) I think goals and theoretically are really a nice thing to set in across various areas in your life. And particularly in this case, um, as you sort of paint out or, you know, try to imagine what the next however many years is going to look like, it can help ground some of that. And at the same time, I think it could be pretty overwhelming to set really large goals. And maybe the idea of setting some incremental short-term goals, I think I support probably mm-hmm. more. So it's like, what are you doing for the next six months? Or, you know, just one-year goal, like to really ease yourself in that transition. I think, not that they said large term goals here, but I do really support the idea of more incremental short term goals and then really identifying like what that looks like once those things are achieved. So you have a mm. sense of like you whether or not you're moving towards that or if you need to make adjustments in those goals or, you know, because we want people to be successful when they set goals. We want them to have a sense of um, that they're moving towards something and not to find go- that goals add more pressure and, you know, create more um challenges for them in terms of feeling confident in their self-efficacy so um, I like goals but just really manageable goals to start manageable goals I like that Woods what are your thoughts yeah I'm sort of thinking about the research that I think suggests that um, there can be a pretty big identity shift for parents when they're sort of facing this empty nest phase of life that I wonder if maybe some goal setting uh, may help to get ahead of that in terms of what do I want to focus on? What do we want to focus on? What do I sort of want to prioritize? Are there things I want to um, do that I haven't had a chance to do before? Are there things I want to sort of lean into that I haven't had the space to before? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of thinking more intentionally about how you want to engage in that phase of life. It makes a lot of sense to me based on I think some of the identity research uh, that shows that that can be sort of a space where um, uh, parents can 
not take a hit, that's not the right word, but you sort of have to re-identify with who you are and, and where you want to go. And goal setting seems like a really natural part of that. Yeah. I agree. It's interesting that end about finding your authentic self. A lot of this reads and all of the recommendations read that like once your kids are out of your house, that part of your identity is gone. You're no longer a parent, right? Like, so I think the authentic self as if you're like you're hiding yourself while you were parenting um, is a little bit concerning to me. And they do talk about how like there are certain types of parents who are more vulnerable to feeling like extreme levels of emptiness. They talked about helicopter parents and things like that. Um, but I think also we have to remember, I mean, we, my children are still in the house, but um, you're still parents. So shaping your parent side of your identity to like, how am I going to parent an adult? I think could be a really healthy transition, but it's not like you're leaving your identity. It's just transitioning. Um, and I think that idea, thinking of trying to develop your authentic identity versus transitioning your parenting identity to parenting an adult, it, it seems like a smoother transition and one that's not fraught with like just leaving one of your identity to die in the dust, you know, <laughs> which I imagine would be where a lot of the grief comes from when sure. your children leave the house. So reframing it in that way would be something that I want, would like. Um, I think goal setting is obviously a great idea. I think it's a cornerstone of a lot of types of therapeutic um, and counseling practices. So yes, team goal setting for sure, whether that's with yourself, with your partner, with a professional, a mental health professional. Um, one of their recommendations also is seek help from a mental health professional if needed. So I agree, good advice. Okay, so the next one is reconnect with your partner, which we kind of alluded to a little bit previously. An empty nest is a perfect opportunity to spend quality time with your significant other. Use this new space and time to reignite the romance in your relationship. Ooh la la. This is the ideal time to create a loving home environment and a mutually supportive, compassionate relationship. In fact, 63% of empty nesters report they become closer with their spouse after their children leave home. Thoughts, Woods, good or bad advice? I think it's good advice. I think there is research to suggest that this uh, transition, this phase of life, um, often uh, couples report higher relationship quality than they do earlier in the relationship. Now, if they I don't, don't divorce. It's, right. I don't know that it's cause and effect. I don't necessarily, I think there is data to suggest there is some impact of um, uh, decreasing responsibilities around uh, caregiving for children. Um, but yes, you are right. There's also sort of the reverse effect in terms of people who make it that far if they have been in a partnership that whole time are sort of self-selecting into a group of people who are married for longer, but also more likely to have higher quality relationships. Um, but their conflict decreases in relationships sort of naturally also. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think for older couples, um, if you have been with your partner for a while, uh, that can be absolutely a time where investing in that relationship even more could be part of the trend towards better relationship quality that we see sort of broadly with couples. Yeah, and, and they say that this is an ideal time to create loving home environment and a mutually supportive, compassionate relationship. And I think 
I hope that I was would done love before. to have made sure that that was done while you were parenting. Um, <laughs> and I think also it's easier. I mean, like you were saying, like you have a lot fewer things to do. So you have more time to like refocus on the relationship. But I think building on that love and strengthening that relationship really can only happen if you were building and ensuring that foundation is there. Even if you weren't like paying super close attention to it, you were kind of attending to it every once in a while during the parenting phase of your relationship. Yeah, so that absolutely. way you're able to come back and really strengthen it um, during um, that empty nest, quote, quote, empty nest phase. You so some of the wanna... wording here, I was like, oh, talk to Ouch. me about how you were parenting and this uh, loving, not loving home environment. Right, you look at each other. Oh, kids are gone. You know what we should do now? We should like each other. Let's be nice to each other now. I know Let's we didn't express we able warm to do that. feelings towards each other. <laughs> Let's stop calling each other names now. <laughs> Joking. Well, as always, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs>